hello out there, wherever you might be watching. Uh, we are broadcasting on the Facebook pages of KBU Community Radio here in Portland, Oregon, as well as on the Facebook page of Popular Resistance and my own Facebook, YouTube, Twitch, Twitter, and LinkedIn accounts, And if I haven't missed anything. And this will be going up as a podcast afterwards if you look for This Week with David Rovix, wherever podcasts are found. And um, I've been doing this uh, winter uh, broadcast uh, thing on Wednesdays at noon Pacific time, which is now. And uh, a lot of the times lately it's been musical events, but today is going to be a conversation with none other than Scott Harris, who is a fantastic radio journalist, longtime broadcaster, um, and more or less neighbor, um, although we didn't know it, um, from Connecticut. And uh, I'm just going to bring Scott on to the screen here with my fabulous technical ability. Scott, great to have you here on the internet and, great to um, be on the show. Thanks for inviting me, David. Thanks. Oh, great pleasure. And Scott, I, I uh, you know, when I lived in Connecticut, uh, which is for uh, a significant portion of my life, um, PKN was just outside of the listening area <laughs> where I grew up, but in in Wilton, just north of where you grew up in Norwalk. Uh, but I would, I, I heard it a lot when I would, you know, go more in the direction of Bridgeport and ran across your show frequently as well as in podcast form. And I just want to, um, I was, I was the, the way that the media landscape, both in independent and corporate and public and everything else has, has evolved so dramatically over the past, uh, over the course of your career. I mean, to me, that's a, a fascinating place to start and we could keep, just keep on going on that subject for hours, but, but we'll, we'll probably move on to other ones. But I, I wonder I wonder, I just want to start out getting some kind of an impression of what was it like doing independent media when you got into it, which I believe was in the, in the seventies and was it the mid seventies, late 70s, 77 or something around there when you first started uh, doing, doing, uh, being involved with, with what I guess they would have been calling the underground press at the time, or I don't know what was the underground still, still a common term for the, for the alternative media at the time. Well, uh, when I went to uh, college, I got involved with a local radio station that was in Western Massachusetts. And uh, I grew up listening to alternative media, PKN, WBAI in New York, a whole range of other kind of mainstream talk shows. So I was really, you know, very kind of passionate about radio and talk radio in particular, you know, people talking about ideas. And uh, I listened to right-wingers. I listened to some left-wingers who were on at the time in the late 60s, early 70s. And when I got into radio, I, I, I tried to, you know, kind of find a follow in the footsteps of people I admired. Um, were but, the right-wingers broadcasting on AM? Or th did they have shows on, on WBAI as well? Or BAI would have been mostly either either music or, or left-wingers, or, or what, what was it like with the politics oh, yeah. back then? B BAI has always been a lefty station, you know, since since I became a listener. But uh, I would listen to AM radio. You know, I'd listen to, uh, there was this notorious right-winger named Brad Crandall, who was, uh, you know, you know, would shout at people, hang up on them, all the, all the kind of nonsense that still goes on on right-wing radio. Um, and there were some, you know, nutty shows like Long John Neville. People who are old as I am might remember him. Um, more, more or less an entertainment show with kind of a conservative twist and a whole range of others. Um, uh, there was another, um, uh, there was an AM radio show, one of the only ones I remember growing up with, with kind of a lefty liberal type, um, a guy named Alex Bennett who people might remember, again, if they're as old as I am. But um, <laughs> he was kind of like the uh, the token countercultural uh, DJ and talk show host on some of the New York AM stations. I guess he had shows other places. But I also loved uh, Gene Shepard, which I think even younger folks will know about. 
from what is and Gene Shepard was broadcasting on 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 what uh, on AM or on on BAI or yeah he he was uh, a regular on I think it was WOR one of the AM stations one of the big AM stations in New York and you know he was a great storyteller I don't know if you've heard tapes of his radio show there you can find them on the internet now um, wonderful storyteller he wrote uh, that that uh, movie uh, Christmas Story right you remember that or maybe not. A- Oh, a Christmas story, or th- that that one, or what was what's 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 this? Which Christmas story? I I think it's just called the a Christmas story, and it was it was about mm-hmm. uh, this kid growing up in Indiana, and all about his trials and travails with his parents growing up in Indiana. And, you know, uh, Gene Shepard had this whole mythology about his childhood when he grew up in Indiana. So this this movie was just kind of a glimpse at things he talked about on the radio when he was when he was a young kid but anyway that's that's kind of like um all all part of what inspired me to do something on radio myself was and the particular medium of radio was it the the, the way that you can engage people and let, take them away and tell a story i mean that that particular sort of way that that the oral tradition works on radio what was uh was what attracted you to the medium rather than, I mean, at the time that you were, at the time that you were getting started with, with radio, I believe it is correct to say that there was a lot more of an, of, of an underground press scene. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the papers that we associate with the sixties were still publishing in the seventies, as I recall vaguely. And uh, I mean, so there would have been like a lot more, kind of avenues maybe for you to get involved with written form of, of uh, alternative media, but radio was, was it right. Right. For you from the beginning that that was the attraction. Yeah. I've done a little writing, but yeah, I was always uh, just enamored with radio and the, the storytelling angle and just hearing instant, you know, getting instant access to new ideas that you may not have come across before. You know, when I was listening to, the station I'm, I'm still at, WPKN, um, it, it kind of opened up a whole new universe of music. I mean, we all grew up listening to Top 40 radio and the commercial stations that pumped out the same same standard songs, you know, the same hit list. Uh, but PKN was, you know, kind of an avant-garde and very unique station in terms of they did a lot of politics, but they also did a lot, probably a, a greater share of the programming was dedicated to uh, all manner of avant-garde jazz and, uh, you know, things you'd not come across ordinarily on most stations. So it was kind of an education, both in um, in culture and music and politics, listening to that station, you know, along with WBAI as well. And I mean, both PKN and BAI were and are part of a a, a network of of community radio stations that have kind of like you know very often very different t- programming, but and sometimes really well organized and sometimes really messy. But but the the similar sort of connection with all these community stations is they program all kinds of stuff that wouldn't be found on the corporate uh, stations, including all kinds of different music and all kinds of different politics that you wouldn't hear on the on the corporate stations. Yeah, but what did you, did you get into? You, we started doing a show at, at PKN largely because geography. I mean, it was what you heard. It was what was on the dial in Norwalk between the, the, the P, PKN to the to the east and and BAI to the west of you there, I guess. Right. And uh, but was that was that basically it? That it was just that was what was around. And, and uh, did you ever program at BAI or you've always had your show at PKN? No, I've I've had uh, I had a show on Connecticut politics on BAI with with another uh, a writer friend of mine, Jim Motivali, um, who was also an early contributor to our Between the Lines syndicated show that we did later. But yeah, we we uh, we did a, a lot of projects together. Um, you know, I was BAI and PKN very close to my heart, both of those stations. Um, but yeah, I was inspired by what I heard on those two stations. So that's kind of why I was really happy when I went to the program director, proposed a, a program. They said, yeah, we'll, we'll put you on. I think the first show I had was like 
you know, six in the morning on, on a Wednesday or something. And I, mm-hmm. I remember the first show I did, which was a, a traumatic experience. I, I was very nervous. And uh, the two programmers that were supposed to relieve me both didn't show up. That was great. And I ended up being on for like eight or 10 hours. I, I forget what, but it was like. Trying, oh, my goodness. You know. <laughs> It's a very long time, especially when you're not like you're not you're not doing music and and just programming. Uh, you know, you can't just put on the next uh, record. But you, at the time, where you, I imagine you you must have resorted to that after an eight hour program. You couldn't have been just talking the whole time or interviewing people the whole time. Well, I, I, in those early days, I, I was doing a music show. I I actually started off on PKN doing a blues music show, uh-huh. which was uh, another kind of you know kind of f- favorite music genre that i loved and uh yeah so how did you get I, into- I got to put a lot of music on i discovered and- a lot of new new music that day so. oh yeah right in the library right at oh, the yeah. at the station we have a, and how yeah, did you get into doing pol- political stuff and interviewing people and that sort of thing was what was the what was the motivating factor there was it uh you were doing a music show and then and then somebody said well there's this activist in town and he needs some publicity can he be on your show i mean i know that, that, that that's happened to me a lot of the time where where i've been passing through some town and then you know they put me on with somebody who just has no idea who i am or what i'm doing there but somebody said you know you know, somebody should interview this guy, and and you know, <laughs> I mean, not that that's a bad thing, but these things can happen in all sorts of different ways. Yeah, no, I I uh, was always kind of uh, very passionate about politics, and you know, when I was in high school, we would be protesting uh, the Vietnam War and a whole range of other issues uh, locally in town. You know, there was a small group of us in our high school that were were active, so. It kind of came naturally that I would uh, kind of extend what I was doing on the air in those early days to you know, try out some interviews on the air with our really clunky phone system that didn't work half the time. <laughs> it was like, yeah. hello, hello. We always, it was like tin cans with strings back in those days, but we made it work somehow. But yeah, I was gradually getting into more and more uh, politics on the air versus the music. And eventually shifted over to just doing an exclusively uh, political talk show. And I wonder what what was the what I wonder what kind of backlash you faced for for doing a political talk show at the time. I mean, it wasn't. Uh, I I I was only um, let's see. Nine years old in 1976, but I remember 1976 uh, particularly well because it was there was just such an uh, such a year long display of over the top patriotic nuttiness coming out of at least uh, the tele the television you know set. I mean I don't know it was um, the backlash against the 60s and and there was so much uh, attitude. In in the mainstream uh, society, about those hippies should just uh, grow up and get with the program and and uh, live with reality as it is. And I mean, I just wonder what the, the atmosphere of doing political programming or political activism in the seventies strikes me as a very different time from doing that work in the sixties. Not not that there wasn't opposition, but the there was a groundswell of a movement. And and when you're doing this work in the seventies. As you describe, it was a, your small group of anti-war uh, friends in Norwalk, right? And that that kind of seems to me to sum up the atmosphere at the time. It wasn't uh, wasn't like you were having big school walkouts. It was a small group of anti-war folks at the at the high school. Yeah, well, when I was in high school earlier, we we did have big walkouts. But later on, you're right. You know, the the, the climate changed. The political environment went more conservative, and. Uh, you know, especially in the waning days of the Carter administration when we got Reagan, you know, it was, mm-hmm. was full blown friendly fascism from Ronald Reagan and his team of corrupt idiots. So, yeah, I mean, we, we always had kind of a very hardcore base of listeners at uh, WPKN where, where I began. And uh, they were always, you know, very embracing of what we did and, and supportive. But there were people who called up and, you know, tried to tried to, their best to insult me or go on the air and, and start ranting. But uh, for the most part, I have to tell you, the the worst of it happened 
during the Trump years. I'd never seen anything like it. I mean, when I compare backlash, as you talked about, with uh, Reagan and what happened in, in, in those, in the decade there that he was in the White House versus what happened in the four years Trump was in the White House, it's, it's, it's incomparable. I mean, death threats and just the all range of insane people would be calling the station and on our social media networks, just, it, it's hard to describe the kind of venom and just over the top insanity, you know, the, the kind of climate denial rolled in with the, you know, I still get this vaccine and COVID denial nonsense. It's, it's really, as many people describe it, it's like we've got millions of people in this country living in an alternative universe, a very evil, insane, hard to comprehend universe. So I would How do you, with, with I that. mean, the, the, it is, it is so interesting that it is, as you described, such a, such a wildly polarized situation now, because it's not like, I mean, if you think back to the Vietnam War, for example, it's not like there wasn't a hell of a lot of polarization in society then, too. I mean, right? You had you had some people thinking that uh, that it was a good thing to, to kill millions of people if it meant liberating Vietnam from the evil grip of communism, and then you had other people... Uh, a whole lot of other people saying that we were committing uh, some of the worst war crimes in the history of humanity and uh, against the civilian population of Vietnam. Very different takes on the same phenomenon that was going on during which time tens of thousands of American soldiers were also dying. I mean, it's a pretty polarized situation, but it is, as you described, so much more polarized under Trump. And I wonder what what is that all about? I mean, you, how much do you? I mean, this was happening to you on a radio station, but how much do you attribute this alternative reality situation to social media? Or I want your analysis because I mean, you know, when you were young and when I was young, I mean, there was also there was still right wingers, rabid right wingers, uh, raging on AM radio. It wasn't like these views were hard to find. I mean, they were out there, easy enough to find. But uh, it, things are different now. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think in part it's social media gives a lot of uh, people on all sides of any question more access, right? And uh, they, they certainly have a, an avenue, the tools to use to talk back and say their piece, whether it's uh, coherent or not. It's another story. But I, I think there's something else at work now. And I think uh, Trump and the people surrounding Trump have given license to the racists, the, the, the extremely hateful and violent people to come out from under their rocks. And, and maybe that wasn't quite so true in the Nixon and Reagan years, you know? I, I think there was still some societal kind of uh, breaks on the kind of hate speech and, you know, blatant racism that we get now with these folks. They, they feel it's just fine. It's been normalized. And, you know, you can see it on TV every goddamn day, you know? It's it's carried as if it's just normal part of the the societal dialogue at this point. So I think that's that's contributed to the at least the kind of um, the conversations that are going on or the screaming matches that are going on now. And then what about the um, I mean, so there's also there's the algorithms and there's social media, so many more people being able to you know produce content and, of course, consume it. And and of course, this also has had an impact on other ways that people get information. And I mean, for a lot of people, whether they're musicians or, or broadcasters, uh, people have been able to make the transition, at least in many cases, from radio to podcasts. And, you know, but what has, uh, I mean, I get, I get the impression generally that there's a lot fewer people listening to radio today than there were uh, 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Is that your impression or, or not so much? You know, I, I don't know. I, I One of the problems we face as a community radio station, speaking just from the perspective of what I know of PKN, uh, the supporters, people who are involved as volunteers at the station, people who contribute most of the money, are folks from an older generation. And one of the things that that's, you know, kind of concerning me and many others is that stations like ours, and I think we're not the only case here, 
we we have to do a better job of reaching out to younger folks because you know I, I think with social media and podcasts people are they're they're kind of programming their own material you know they they and I knew this is true with music as well right um, it, it used to be you you, you know you kind of went down the radio dial and see what you liked or, or discover something new, possibly by accident. It's kind of like looking through a newspaper, right? You come across an article you might not otherwise read. Um, but now you, you're kind of selecting in advance what you're going to surround yourself with, whether it's, you know, politics or culture or, or music or anything else. And in, unless you're kind of reaching out beyond your algorithm bubble on purpose to be exposed to new things, you, you may very well be a prisoner of that bubble and not discover new stuff. So a lot of younger people don't listen to the radio. You know, they're not, they're not listening to the radio stations in their car like I used to, and you probably did too. Um, yep. they, have, they, they have things in their, uh, their iPod or however, <laughs> or these younger folks do it these days, you know. Um, it's, it's something I... Uh, you know, we've talked about it at our, our station. Um, we're doing podcasts now, of course, and uh, hopefully that reaches uh, n- new folks that don't, uh, they're not acclimated to be uh, thumbing through the radio dial every day. So, you know, we have our work cut out for us. I, I think it's not as easy to uh, attract new listeners as it used to be using the old tools. What about the impact of on the culture generally? Um, or on your life, or just any reflection at all of the um, in 1981, I believe it was when when the uh, fairness, what was it, the fairness in media or something, the Reagan, the fairness really de- doctrine, yeah, yeah. When that, when that, when when Reagan deregulated the media, basically at that point, and then later, I mean, there were various other waves of deregulation and and uh, allowing fewer corporations to own more stations and all that. But and then also with the fairness doctrine, I believe it was and now it's I'm fuzzy on the details, but I believe it was that that also resulted in uh, local commercial radio stations no longer needing to maintain news departments. And then there were, I think, 5000 local radio journalists who lost their jobs all at the same time uh, around that time. This is information coming from somebody else, and I don't know where her information comes from, but I'm pretty sure that this is accurate or more or less accurate. But what, what was your what what changed uh, with 1981 and and that uh, what how did the media change at that point? Was it really obvious in any immediate way, or slowly became obvious? Or well, I, I think that the fairness doctrine, as I recall, um, dealt mostly with uh, FCC regulations where licensed stations were obligated to provide equal time on, on any given issue. So when that was erased, when that was done away with, that's when the Rush Limbaugh's and people came out of the woodwork because you could have this, uh, you know, screaming idiot on the air, uh, riling people up for, you know, two, three, four hours at a time. And that station had no obligation to put on any other points of view. So that's how you got the, the kind of crop of right-wing radio talk show hosts that, you know, today has, uh, d- d- you know, developed into the, uh, the kind of most bizarre guy in media these days, Alex Jones, you know. But I, mm-hmm. I think that's his antecedents is that these folks laid the groundwork for conspiracy theory and, and hate monger radio. Um, but yeah, that's where it came from. As the stations were allowed with their major corporate sponsors to put these uh, extreme right-wingers on the air and had no obligation to provide any other points of view on their airwaves. Um, that, that had been the case earlier and stations wouldn't have done it, you know, because they, uh, they wanted to program stuff that was probably um, broadcast, you know, and attracting as many people as possible. But I think they came up with a new formula after the uh, fairness doctrine was gotten rid of and realizing that if you push a pe- people's emotional buttons and, and make them froth at the mouth, that uh, 
you know, it, you might have some more loyal listeners than you otherwise would have. I don't know exactly what the the marketing and uh, profit end of it was, but obviously it was profitable, and it was yeah. backed by some of the biggest corporations in America, who who love people like Rush Limbaugh on the air, you know, preaching against taxes and affirmative action and any kind of environmental regulation that was kind of like the the, the main uh, staple of these right wingers in the early days, and they would. Of course, uh, they they would also, of course, support U.S. wars abroad. That was that was another huge component of this kind of militaristic, jingoistic style that these right wing talk show hosts were famous for. And speaking of wars abroad, uh, one one of the um, one of the main sort of I guess in terms of what we would characterize as left wing political movements that were going on in the United States um, in the in the seventies and eighties um, was around uh, solidarity with uh, the people of Central America and opposition to uh, U.S. Uh, Im- imperial. Um, actions and and supporting proxy armies and massive military funding and everything else and the dictatorships in in, uh, Central America or fighting against the uh, guerrilla movements and all all sorts of different things going on. But I wonder, um, the the atmosphere of... uh, the the anti-intervention movement at that time and and uh what what, what kind of like i guess uh what was the it's a very vague broad question but i'm just wondering what was the scene like in terms of the, that movement and what what did it feel like how did how did the movement perceive itself did did you feel like you were making any headway was was uh, was did you feel like you were always losing or was there a sense that that there was uh, uh sometimes you fight and you win well, I, I certainly was very much involved in the Central America solidarity movements in the early days after uh, Reagan got in office. Of course, he launched the Contra War in Nicaragua, was supporting the, uh, the, the military death squads in El Salvador and Guatemala. And you know, it was a bloodbath down there. And um, after, the, after the Sandinista Revolution, was victorious in 1979. Um, a couple of years later, in 1981, I went down to uh, Nicaragua and did some reporting from there. And this was just before the Contra War had started. So I got to know a lot of people down there, got a sense of what the country was doing and how it was changing in terms of literacy campaigns and you know the health clinics that were opening up and a lot of you know very positive developments in that country after 40 years of U.S. supported dictatorship by Anastasio Somoza and that whole family. And uh, when I came back to the States, I I continued to cover the things going on in Central America. But of course, when the Contra War began, you know, I I sort of dedicated a lot of my broadcast time to uh, opponents of the war and the various grassroots movements here in the U.S. that were uh, organizing to oppose the the horrible just murder that was going on there at these these uh, these fascist uh, folks that the U.S. had been supporting, and of course this was a great way to educate folks who are listeners not just about that war but about all the imperialist history of the United States and the and the you know dozens of wars and. Uh, coups and overthrows of governments that the United States was doing in Latin America, in in Iran, you know, in the whole Vietnam War era. It, it was uh, it was a way really to delve into U.S. foreign policy and its history and to talk more broadly uh, about what people should be aware of about their own country's history. So, you know, I I also was involved in the early days of opposition to the Contra War with a group called Pledge of Resistance, mm-hmm. where people would engage in nonviolent civil disobedience to uh, you know, get some focus on the issue in, in front of uh, congressional offices, at the post office, would be street demonstrations, you know, the things that people are familiar with in terms of uh, being active. But later I found an outlet 
um, apart from the radio end of it and the Pledge of Resistance, um, I was inspired by a group in New Haven, Connecticut that had formed a sister city partnership with the city of Leon in Nicaragua. And we eventually uh, formed one in the Norwalk area with uh, Nagarote, which is a small town right between Managua, the capital of Nicaragua, and Leon. Uh, Nagarote was a interesting little town that we got our mayor of Norwalk at that time, Bill Collins, to visit. We, we formed mm. the committee first. He went down there with a group of other legislators and kind of made the uh, sister city um, relationship official, which, you know, was extremely lucky. Great. Bill Collins is still around and still doing great stuff. And um, yeah, the, the sister city project that we began back uh, in 1986 is when we started it. Um, it's still going strong. And uh, through all the turmoil in Nicaragua, the politics and the violence a few years ago in the streets, and we've survived and focused a lot on after school programs for children. We have a community center that's thriving over there, scholarships for colleges. And, you know, we got a great group of people here in, in our area and around New England who support this work. We have an organic farm down there. So some some positive things have developed out of that horrible time, I can say, because uh, otherwise we would have never known about the people in Nagarote and they wouldn't have known about us. And I guess that's the beauty of a sister city relationship. Do you have any particular reflections on what's been going on in Nicaragua for the past few years that keeps on continually making international headlines? Um, you know, you know I've, I've been kind of depressed by what's going on in Nicaragua. I, um, I've always been supportive of the Sandinista party, but Daniel Ortega seems to have taken on a lot of traits that uh, are not healthy for what's going on there. Um, so I'm, I'm critical of what's going on. And, you know, one of the, the latest incidents that happened, some of his former allies in the early Sandinista movement have been arrested. And it's, it's disappointing, to say the least. But I will also say that the United States uh, and its threats, its economic embargo, uh, the history of slaughter against the people of Nicaragua, it, it, can, it can make you do things as, as a leader of a country that's been the target of that kind of uh, violence and harassment. It can make you do things that uh, might seem rational if I were in their shoes, you know. I, I can't possibly know all that's going on in Nicaragua behind the scenes. So while I'm critical, I, I don't profess to have a black and white view of what's happening there. Um, all I know such is such a good point, isn't it? I mean, when when you the, the people who think the CIA is out to get them in so many cases, they are absolutely correct, and yes. it's really happening. And the CIA has incredible resources, and no level of paranoia is too paranoid. I mean, when Hugo Chavez for years was not flying right anywhere, I mean, he was constantly canceling plans to fly because he had information that the CIA was planning on shooting down his plane. Yeah. And then, of course, people in in places like you know many normal people in the U.S. might hear this kind of thing if they hear it at all, and they think, "Oh, what a paranoid nutcase!" Not realizing that how many Latin American heads of state have actually been killed by their planes getting shot out of the sky. I mean, this is not even, there's been at least, I think at least two or three of them, you know, this is not a, a, a minor uh, thing to be, uh, you know, not, yeah, nothing, nothing paranoid about it, but. No, you're right. Yeah. In, in fact, when I was in Nicaragua back in those early days, uh, we met a few kids on the street who pointed at us and said, see ya. CIA. <laughs> no, no, we're, we're not CIA. We actually got to be good friends with these these young kids, and they, they showed us all around. And, but, you know, like you said, that history, uh, it makes an indelible mark on people and can dictate your behavior. And yeah. it's almost by design, you know, when the United States has all these uh, plans afoot to overthrow you or undermine you or bankrupt the country or embargo you, uh, you know, it has this self-fulfilling prophecy of people are going to clamp down on what's going on in their country when there is, a, is, is an attack from outside, which the United States has a long history of doing in many, many countries. 
and then they'll accuse you of human rights abuses, of course, right? Yes. I mean, and, and of course, in, in, in endless, endless uh, numbers of other examples like that. But I mean, of course, lately in the news, even, you know, more than Nicaragua is China. And of course, uh, you know, all, all the horrors uh, that have been uh, meted out against any of the people in Western China over the past 600 years, uh, we can be sure that the U.S. doesn't care about those people in Western China, and they just want to foment ethnic rebellion in order to foment crackdowns in order to complain about human rights abuses, and, or or in order to hope, hopefully destabilize uh, China with uh, some kind of ethnic rebellion. And I mean, this is the U.S.'s M.O. all over the world for so long, it seems like. I mean, not it seems, it has been, you know, certainly in Nicaragua as well. But I... Um, yeah, so... I, getting back to the question of um, sort of different kinds of media and and uh, and, and podcasts and, and stuff like that, I, I think, um, you know, one of the things I, I was looking at your podcast, looking at my podcast, we both have like about 100 followers on uh, podcast land, right? But I mean, you know, or there's other ways to reach people, obviously, both on the internet as well as, you know, on, on radio, obviously, you, you can't measure your listeners so easily. And but uh, there's a lot of people, independent uh, journalists, independent musicians, people w trying to work with the internet today who are constantly figuring out ways to reach audiences. And, you know, one of the things I just learned recently is that although I have very few podcast followers, 23% of the people who listen to me on Spotify heard my music because of Spotify's algorithms recommending my music because they like some other music that Spotify thinks is related to me. So so this is um, kind of one of the, you know, the, I mean, algorithms can, can play in different ways and sometimes they can potentially have a positive impact on some people. But that's one way that people try to do outreach, you know, get into playlists and algorithms and figure out how to, how to, how to ride them or whatever. But in the terrestrial um, space of media, between the lines has you guys have you guys formed a a group uh that that was uh, quite a while ago that was involved with basically marketing the show in order to and, and it has become a very successfully syndicated show on i believe 60 different uh community radio stations around the country and i wonder if you could talk about that process uh, because yeah there's other content creators out there who i think are are interested in this sort of, sort of process and and you know what 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 made you think about doing it and because you know popular education as you do uh can can be just a a thing that's local for the local listening area and or it can be a, a syndicated show or it can be in different kinds of mediums and i i just uh, you know i i guess in terms of both journalists or musicians or any anybody else, I think a lot of people have a sort of cup half full, cup half empty kind of orientation, which can affect whether they think about even bothering to try to syndicate their show or not. You know, so I'm just I'm just wondering about the the thought process there, and and then and then how you how you did it uh, actually quite successfully. Yeah, so we we began in. Um, I'm, I'm forgetting what year, but we're celebrating our 30th anniversary this year. So I guess it was 1991. So, and there's a party next month online, right? Yeah, we have we have a celebration coming up, and uh, I can tell you more about that later. But mm -hmm. yeah, we we began uh, back in 1991. Uh, we had a show dedicated to what was then the first Persian Gulf War that uh, George H.W. Bush started. That's before. Oh, and incidentally, today, January 26th, as is, is is just, you know, nailed into my head, January 19th and January 26th, 1991, there were major anti-war protests in D.C. I just, I mean, that date is always in my head, and today's January 26th. So. Okay, well, and, this is the right time to, to reminisce about those days. But, yeah, we started a program to talk, to address all the misinformation that was in the U.S. media at that point. It was just blatant propaganda, as there still is today, about foreign affairs. We can talk about Ukraine in a moment. But, uh, yeah, there was the drumbeat for war. And, uh, of course, Saddam Hussein had attacked and invaded Kuwait. You know, it was it, it was a real tense time. And it, it was actually a, a war, eventually, H.W. 
uh, Bush launched it, but we started our program to directly address all the crazy disinformation coming out of the major TV networks and newspapers. And um, after the war was over, we, we continued the program and began to syndicate it uh, by, you know, speaking with folks at other radio, other community radio stations near us and then eventually across the country. And uh, in those days, we had two methods to distribute the program, cassette tapes mailed. <laughs> so yeah. we remember cassette tapes. And uh, then later on, we also used Pacifica, the Pacifica Radio Network, got something called a KU satellite, which was an inexpensive satellite system that stations could afford the downlink. And uh, we distributed it that way, too. And of course, once the Internet arrived, we could we could get our show up uh, anywhere in the world very quickly through uh, uploading the show uh, to to our website and to multiple other websites that that um, that are, I think, called aggregators, where they can, they can put the show out to any number of folks. We have about 70 stations, but we probably have more than that because we're always finding new stations broadcasting our stuff because we give it away for free. Um, yeah, so they don't have to tell you. They can just take the MP3 and broadcast it, right? Yeah, and they can do that. And we, we, we'd like to know where they are so we can help publicize what they're doing and kind of have some mutual support, but we don't always know. Um, so it's a it's a lot of fun knowing your show is on different cities around the country. I have people, uh, you know, who travel around and folks call us from Portland, Oregon. I, we have so many stations in Washington State. You know, I, I don't know why there, but we, we have lots there and on the, the northwest coast of the country. So it's it's worked out well. And we have I should tell folks that. Between the Lines started in 1991 with an all-volunteer staff. No one was paid to do this every week. You know, it's a half-hour news magazine format. So we have, you know, probably 10, 12 people working on the show every week. Wow. And I, I can tell you, we're all still volunteer. Myself and everyone who works on the show doesn't get paid anything. We do it because uh, we fancy ourselves citizen journalists. Uh, we're passionate about uh politics and addressing uh, the information gap that only independent only independent media can fulfill so that's why we still do it after 30 years and uh time has gone by quickly i could say that it doesn't seem like 30 years no and and the uh the crew has uh evolved over time the 10 yeah, people yes. involved we have some stalwarts that are still a core group that's still with us but yeah we have a whole range of new people every few years, you know, people come in and leave and um, met a lot of wonderful folks who volunteered with the show over these many years. And we stay in touch and, uh, you know, they move away, but they always uh, uh, let us know that we're doing the right thing when they listen to the show that they used to be part of. But you know, there was somebody re recently talking about, I mean, I, I, I guess I think about this a lot and, and I, you know, especially because I travel a lot in different countries and it, and it, in different countries, things are, conditions are so different in so many ways. And so it's, it's, uh, it's an easy contrast to make between one place and another, and another, but it seems like in some places there are institutions that, that just continue through the generations uh, or through the decades at least and, and, and that, that, are, that have some kind of self-perpetuating uh, thing about them. Like um, in some cases, I, I, I'm thinking of the Socialist Youth Federation in Denmark, for example. There, they, there are sort of, I don't know exactly how it works, but I believe it's a, a left-wing political party that provides them with a uh, a budget or somehow or other they, they have a budget they have offices all over the country so to maintain this group and for there always to be new members of the group coming in it's like this continually maintained phenomenon of which always has new teenagers entering into this socialist youth federation and then uh, doing whatever they do which which always includes putting on shows for me so I, i'm very aware of the group and what they're doing because i'm, I'm kind of you know they're uh you know, one of their musicians, basically. Right. But this kind of uh, this kind of phenomenon in other, I, I hear people complain, um, and, and I'm probably one of them, about uh, the the phenomenon in other countries, including in the U.S., where this kind of um, 
this kind of like perpetuating institutions uh, just doesn't necessarily happen. It doesn't get off the ground. I mean, I can think of so many um, peace and justice centers in the 80s that were in towns all over the country, and the, probably 98% of them don't exist anymore, um, which is, of course, this kind of thing happens for all sorts of different reasons, you know, obviously, you know, gentrification and you know, the property prices, all kinds of different reasons, uh, not necessarily through any fault of movements and their, you know, inability to organize or whatever. There's a, obviously a very complicated picture here, but I, I wonder if you have thoughts on that being part of one of those very institutions yourself. Well, I, I think you're right. It's it's rare that a, a grassroots, especially a progressive or, or lefty institution can stand the test of time. I've seen a lot of wonderful groups and institutions and newspapers and magazines and all manner of groups uh, disappear over the years. Um, I've been very lucky, you know, talking about our sister city project, it still persists and our, our radio show still persists, but that's probably has a lot more to do with the people who are involved and uh, the dedication they have rather than having some kind of uh, su supportive uh, environment to help it keep it afloat. But, um, you know, I've, I've talked with uh, Nation Magazine uh, course, national correspondent John Nichols, as well yes. as Robert McChesney, uh, a professor of media studies. Yes. And, um, you know, they've written a book and have addressed this a lot in their writings about how other nations, as, as you just talked about, maybe in Denmark, where there there is taxpayer funds that flow to, to a diversity of groups, you know, not just left or right, but but all manner of, of groups and uh, publications yep. and media to to keep the kind of diverse voices in their society, uh, which is, you know, is, which is a sign of health for a democracy, right? Um, yeah. And I, I wish we would uh, push harder for things like that, and maybe maybe we will. <laughs> but but that would be nice to get some institutional support for for unique and interesting uh, groups like ours and for musicians as well um certainly we we had support for musicians um back in the new deal days right there were there were, there were all sorts of cultural um as, as cultural yep. organizations during the fdr days that yeah that unfortunately ended with his presidency yep in in uh, Sweden, I discovered uh, a few years ago that um, if a newspaper has 2,000 or more subscribers, then the government gives them a full-time staff of six. Wow. Paid, like, Swedish salaries, you know, <laughs> to run the paper. So the, uh, the proletarian newspaper in Sweden has a staff of seven. So I guess I guess they have a they have enough of a subscriber base to actually pay for one staff member, and then the government gives them six more. So it's uh, it's uh, and then I was telling this to some folks that have a newspaper in Denmark, and they weren't aware of this uh, program in Sweden, and it suddenly made all kinds of sense to them why the Swedish paper <laughs> does so much more background research on their stories and stuff like that. Mm. Yeah, interesting. So yeah, I, guess, I guess you know if there's no strings attached, that would be the only caveat, right? Yeah, they and, and no, and there are no strings attached. They they yeah. can um, it can be uh, any number of different political perspectives. They support right wing papers in the same way in Sweden, yeah. and and that's healthy. And I wish we would do that here. But, yeah, uh, right now we have to we have to struggle. We have to dumpster dive for meals and live in refrigerator boxes to make ends meet. But I guess we we we're passionate enough about it so that we do that. That's right. They might call it scrappiness somewhere, but it's uh, yeah, it's it's um, yeah. In in one thing in Denmark is um, when you ask if anybody's somebody's a volunteer in some kind of situation, you know, there's a a thing in a number of different European countries. There's this is real rejection of the whole 
concept of trying to maintain institutions through volunteerism, you know, and which of course we, we'd, we'd reject the concept if we had that <laughs> chance, you know, but uh, to, to have government funding for people to, uh, you know, to, to do community radio or to do any number of other things. But tell me about what's going on um, next month. The, the, the Between the Lines uh, turns 30 and, and there's a, a series of, uh, of activities. Yeah, we, you know, Every five years or so, we do a little anniversary um, presentation. We, we've, we've done a whole series of public forums going back to when Howard Zinn was still alive. We, we would uh, invite uh, a whole series of folks. We, you know, we had Michio Kaku, and we had, uh, I'm trying to think of who else we had, uh, Greg Pallast, um, Jeremy Scahill, a whole number of folks uh, talk uh, about a range of topics during our sort of every five-year anniversary uh, thing. And that, those were live events. But of course, with COVID, this 30th anniversary year, uh, we had so many uh, fits and starts about when this pandemic was going to end. I think we made the right decision just to go with a virtual event this year. Yeah. So we're very excited. We've just recorded a panel discussion with some great folks, um, and they include uh, former Ohio State Senator uh, Nina Turner, um, who was certainly uh, well known as a Bernie Bernie Sanders uh, election or campaign surrogate, and unfortunately uh, was beat in, in large part because of I think uh, corporate media had it out for her when she ran for a congressional seat in Ohio recently. But she's part of a panel discussion, along with Bill Fletcher Jr., who's a really well-respected labor and racial justice activist. Greg Pallast, Greg Pallast, I should say, uh, who's you know award-winning investigative journalist, who really is single-handedly, I think, exposed the voter suppression going back to the 2000 election in Florida with the caging and um, all that. we also have um, Adrian Hawk, who's a, a, a wonderfully energetic youth climate activist and organizer. And Victor Picard, uh, professor of media studies at the University of Pennsylvania, a great guy. He's our moderator. So the topic that we're going to have this panel talk, uh, talk about is the crisis in U.S. journalism and the future of independent media and democracy, given that we think media and independent media and democracy are all intertwined, especially these days. Yeah. So it's an exciting discussion. Um, we'll, we'll be putting stuff out on our website and through social media uh, and all the panelists will as well. So we'll, we'll kind of make it known the exact date and time that it's going to go live. Um, we're also going to have uh, greetings from Norman Solomon, John Nichols, uh, Kevin Gray, uh, Medea Benjamin, and we're going to have a song from a guy you might have heard of named David Rovix. He's going to be entertaining us through a piece of this as well. Thank you, David. Of course. Well, well, we don't have the date yet because not all the pieces are put together, but um, we'll we'll let that be known very soon. And we'll also have it around for a long time on all sorts of uh, media venues so you can watch it anytime. Scott, as somebody who's been sitting in a in a small dark room with headphones on for decades, um, how different was it to do that during the pandemic? Um, to, you mean to put together this in terms kind of, of in terms of actually doing uh, in terms of actually doing radio? I mean, I think for a whole lot of people during the pandemic, they're they're not. I mean, of course, a lot of people have been getting used to the internet and including streaming media and zoom and whatever before the pandemic but i think uh, a lot of people were a lot less um familiar or comfortable with uh, the idea of uh sitting in a closet with a with, with a head a headphones on and a microphone in front of their face but it's something that you had been doing a long long time although maybe in pkn you got something better than a closet i don't know but i mean so many of the com- I, I can't remember what pkn looks like in the inside but so many community radio stations around the country are uh in like small dark rooms in the basement with no windows so i'm just imagining it's like that too well 
two things. Uh, WPCAN recently moved to wonderful new studios. And nice. With windows? How we moved and why we moved, I won't get into, but uh, our listeners really came through and, and we got the funds to, we had to move from our previous location. And, uh, oh, it's a, it's a, it's a real, you know, like you said, it was like a, a, a smelly locker room that we lived in for 30, 40 years there at that other yeah. place. But now it's like sparkling brand new with new equipment that works. And, uh, oh, nice. And that's a blessing. But when I go there, nobody's there because everybody's doing their shows remote. I'm the only one because I do it live on the phones. I, uh, I come in to do it live. Um, we record our <clears throat> Between the Lines program here at my house in my home studio. And we used to have people come in to narrate the news and such uh, before COVID, but we haven't done that in a while. And I'm um, very grateful to my wife, Anna Manzo, who's a big part of uh, the production of Between the Lines every week. And she's been uh, drafted as our newsreader for these last two years. Um, sometimes tensions are high during the recording sessions as a, a wife and husband can have one sometimes, especially when we're, we're talking about how to pronounce uh, foreign leaders' names from uh, Vladivostok and such. But, you know, we, Great. We, make it work. we make it work. Yeah, not all married couples should necessarily work together, but it can be a, a great uh, relationship building exercise as well, perhaps, if it doesn't do the opposite. <laughs> I listen to BBC fact. World Service so much that I can pronounce any foreign leader's name, and I can do it better than, than, than most American news readers, I have to say, because they don't listen to BBC World Service. And I don't know where these other newsreaders get their pronunciation from, but BBC has a whole department that does that with like actual native speakers and stuff. So if you want to say, if you want to know how to say Morgan Changarai correctly, you know, I don't know how correct that is, but it's not Changarai, it's Changarai, you know, but how often does anybody talk about Zimbabwe on the news? You know, you wouldn't, you know, a lot of people wouldn't know how to say that. Hey, David, yeah. before um, we conclude, I, I just want to thank you for all your music. And I should have said this earlier, but your music is a, a big part of uh, my radio show all these years because whenever there's a topic that I'm talking about on the air and I need some segue music to go to the next interview, there you are. David Rovix, look him up. He's got a song about it from a progressive perspective. So it fits in like, you know, nothing else would. So thank you. Uh, and I, you know, just not in terms of my show alone, but just the music that you produce and the messages in that music are just incredibly valuable. As we know, music has a way of uh, communicating things that speech alone cannot. So I thank you for all these years of great music you've produced for all of us. Thank you. You're very kind. I, yeah, I think, I think we need music. Between the, the, uh, the news stories especially, good topical music, it really, I mean, just, you know, not just my own, but just from a... Uh, you know, basic communication perspective. You know, if you're doing uh, doing education, you're talking about a, a a story. If you can then play a song that pulls on people's heartstrings, that's related to the story you just did, which is what songs do. It's just because that's what music does. You know, you don't need to don't need to you know beat them over the head with it. You just tell a story and you do it in song form. It's going to affect people emotionally, and it seems like. Uh, I guess I would have to say a fairly obvious way to follow up a, a, a news story, but sadly it's it's not universal, I've noticed, and I'm not going to mention any particular shows out there that don't do it very well, but there's there's some that a lot of people listen to that I wish they would play more uh, you know, contemporary music uh, rather than uh, you know another Pete Seeger song, much as I love Pete Seeger. You know, what, what are the most memorable songs that you wrote that I, I play whenever the topic comes up or a related topic, and that is The Dying Firefighter about 9-11. That's just an incredibly powerful song, and it has such a, a, a nuanced message about that terrorist attack and, and how some of us rose above the kind of gut violent response that our nation ended up doing. But, yeah, it's, it, was, it remains a really important piece of music that I think if people haven't heard it, they should. Wonderful review. Thank you. <laughs> great talking to you, Scott. It's been a great pleasure. And I hope Thanks, to see you David. soon. Thank I'm you. 
it's fun to be on the receiving end of an interview rather than being yeah right isn't it i always like i never did interviews until the pandemic started but i always wanted to do a little bit of journalism so it's been it's been a great little pandemic as far as that goes <laughs> all right take care see you again thanks Dave. next month in fact okay and that was Scott Harris, host of Between the Lines Radio News Magazine. And tune in somewhere on the internet uh, next month for, for the 30th anniversary celebration of the program. And um, I'll be back next week with another Wednesday programming um, event of some kind, probably involving an octave mandolin, if I get it back from the shop in time. And um, otherwise, keep on keeping on. Uh, don't pay the rent unless you really have to. And um, remember, uh, mutual aid and solidarity can solve all of our problems. Bye for now.